Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 117, Israel and American Jews Today. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we are launching a series today exploring the relationship between American Jews and the future of American Judaism and Israel. We didn't want to spend forever exploring this, and we also realized that there's only so far you can get in a limited number of episodes. So we're going to do our best, and I'm sure it's something that we're going to return to in the future. For a long time, we haven't been sure how to cover the topic of Israel, because fundamentally, this podcast is about the future of Judaism in America. The relationship with Israel and relating to Israel is part of that story. So we're trying to keep an open mind and explore the question, particularly from the vantage point of the folks that we're thinking about all the time on this podcast and that we're hopefully talking to, which are folks who are not really connecting with American Jewish institutions as they are today and who are trying to imagine what a future might look like that might be profoundly different from our past. Remember when we opened the show with the idea that Judaism Unbound was kind of built out of the perspective that we called Ipcha Mistabra, the Talmudic term, which means sort of opposite thinking. And it says we want to try to look at this question a little bit differently than it's usually looked at. So we're doing our best on this series, and, and we hope that you'll find it interesting and valuable. Our first guest is somewhat synonymous with this question over the last decade. Peter Beinart wrote an article in the New York Review of Books in 2010. It was called The Failure of the American Jewish Establishment, in which Beinart essentially argued that the approach that major Jewish American institutions were taking towards Israel was more or less putting young Jews in particular to a choice between supporting Israel and continuing to support and live out their liberal values. They were going to ultimately choose their liberal values. We're excited to talk to Peter Beinart today about the ideas that he laid out in that article and where his ideas have gone in the almost decade since that article came out. The ideas that he laid out in his initial article in 2010 in the New York Review of Books were expanded upon in a book which came out two years later in 2012 called The Crisis of Zionism. Peter Beinart is a columnist, journalist, and political commentator. He is also a professor of journalism and political science at the City University of New York. He has written for Time, The New York Times, The New York Review of Books, and Haaretz newspaper in Israel. From 1995 to 1997, Peter Beinart was the managing editor at The New Republic and continued to work at that magazine until 2006, including serving seven years as the editor of the magazine. In 2012, Peter Beinart was named by Foreign Policy magazine as one of 100 top global thinkers. We're excited to welcome Peter Beinart to help us launch this conversation about the future of the relationship between Israel and the American Jewish community and the ways in which Israel may or may not have a significant role to play in the emergence of a new way of being Jewish in America. So, Peter Beinart, welcome to Judaism Unbound. We're thrilled to have you. Really nice to be here. So we wanted to just uh, take a little bit of a trip back in the time machine to 2010 when you published your uh, article on the 
uh, present and future of the American Jewish community's relationship with Israel. And you, you titled that article in the New York Review of Books, The Failure of the American Jewish Establishment. So you, you were really good at the clickbait even before we had social media. <laughs> And yeah, the New York Review of Books is really known for that. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Um, and then you <laughs> click on it and you find that it's a 10,000 word article and you're like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> right. So we wanted to start by just for the sake of our listeners who really don't know anything about what you were saying back then. And, and I still think what you were saying back then is, is critically important and it's been uh, very much proven itself true about the the way that the relationship of the American Jews and Israel w would likely go, if you could kind of give us the, the basic thesis that, and an argument that you put out there and that you, you built upon in your book, The Crisis of Zionism, uh, why was it that, the, that you were saying that the um, Jewish establishment was failing and that the, uh, a large percentage of American Jews would, would likely drift away from Israel if, if it continued? You know, the argument I was making was that there was a generation of American Jews um, who were willing to kind of bifurcate their outlook on Israel from their outlook on other political issues. Um, so that when they looked at many domestic and even other many foreign policy issues, they looked at it through a kind of a human rights universalistic kind of moral lens. But for, because of their life experience or a narrative they had bought into about the, about the, about Jewish uh, about the fragility of the Jewish experience about the presence of anti-Semitism that, that that when they turned to Israel they kind of looked at through different lenses through a, with a much more of a sympathy for kind of much on a security oriented lens a kind of a tribal us versus them lens um, and that for a variety of reasons that that um, bifurcation did not exist much less among younger American Jews, you know, people we now call millennials. I don't know if I was using that term back then, who basically, if they are progressive on domestic American issues and other foreign policy issues, will see Israel through the same lens. It won't make, it won't kind of a code switch in that way. And therefore, the unwillingness of the organized American Jewish community to kind of to actually live out these, you know, and actually fight for and struggle for these um, human rights oriented kind of liberal democratic values vis-a-vis -vis Israel was essentially asking younger American Jews to choose between the, the, their liberalism, which they many, many of them feel deeply about, and the Zionism that's kind of on offer, a kind of a hear no evil, see no evil. And that um, my prediction was that um, all of this was really talking, I should say, about non-Orthodox Jews. I mean, Orthodox Jews are in a different category, which we can talk about later. Um, but for non-Orthodox Jews, my prediction was that most of them would choose liberalism over Zionism. Uh, it would be the more important value for them. And um, so that was basically the, the kind of argument that I made. And, and what did you think then that the proper response of the establishment, the American Jewish establishment, by which I think you were referring largely to the sort of larger Jewish organizations of American life, but I think also probably synagogues, what would be the, the right yeah. way that they should have and, and perhaps still should have dealt with that situation, but, they, but they've gone in a different way? My desire would be for them first to be willing to hold a really kind of open and unafraid and no hard barred kind of internal conversation 
uh, with younger Jewish, with younger American Jews about Israeli policy, you know, encourage American Jews to actually see for themselves what Palestinian life in the West Bank is like, to have a, have a conversation about uh, a variety of Israeli policies in the West Bank, in Gaza, even inside the Green Line, about, about what happened to the Palestinians during Israel's War of Independence, all of these kind of things that I think, and even about Zionism itself, about what Zionism is and how exactly one does reconcile, you know, liberal democratic ideals with the idea of a state that has a special obligation to, to the protect, for the protection and representation of Jews who are absolutely, after all, not the only people who live in the state of Israel. I think it would do that. And then I think it would also it, it legitimize and validate um, a kind of a response to all of that, by, which would say, we, are, we take what we take from that, which I think is what many younger American Jews would, is that our relationship with Israel is going to be, they're not simply going to relate to the Israeli government in a kind of a defense relationship, i.e., you know, the Israeli government will decide whatever it wants and we will defend whatever policies it pursues against any pressure from anyone in the United States, but that we will struggle to change the policies of the, of the Israeli government, struggle to change Israel to make it reflect the values that we believe in, just as we would do vis-a-vis the United States government. When you when you look out, at, so I'm speaking in the in the millennial generation, and um, and as someone who was following along in 2010 in college, and and then in 2012 when your book Crisis of Zionism came out, also in college, and one of my questions then, and that I sort of was curious to hear from you about was. You, I really do think, had a sense of where millennial Jews were mentally, emotionally, psychologically before a lot of us did ourselves. Um, and and I'm not, I'm not just saying this to be kind. I'm saying it because genuinely, you you wrote some things that felt like I was feeling them as you wrote them. And so I guess I'm curious, how did you? come to this place? Did you, I mean, I know you've spoken on college campuses and like, what is it that led you to the diagnoses that you were making and the differentiation that you are drawing between different generations on how they have related to Israel and will in the future? You know, it's funny you say that and I appreciate it, but I, I have to say that I've actually been struck over the years since then, particularly when I do talk to younger, to, to a millennial American Jews about often the gap between myself and them, that there really is a generation gap between me and them, uh, you know, I, I also feel the, gen- the generation gap, obviously, between myself and people, you know, who are a generation older, but there are a whole series of issues from, um, in which I actually feel like, in many ways, what's happening, if you look at groups like If Not Now, for instance, is that they're, I, I feel like they're pushing beyond some of the formulations um, that I was, uh, that, that framed my argument. In some ways, I find that really challenging on a personal level. In some ways, I find it invigorating. I can only say that from my own experience, I think that the, it's not entirely an answer to your question, but, you know, I think I feel and have, and have in my own life, and have, since I was a kid, given my family's experience of South African Jews, a very um, acute tension between universalism and particularism um, and, uh, and, and, and a very strong emotional connection to both and a lot of difficulty in trying to find the right balance between the two of them. Um, and I think that, that it was that sensibility, which is just one that 
personal that is that uh, that is personal to me. I think that I felt like helped me map out the way I framed these things because um, I uh, I really and I think it's also again then as an adult spending a lot of my kind of time in orthodox kind of or at least pseudo orthodox environments. I I find myself often in this situation where I am deeply attracted to certain spheres. Um, uh, uh, ritually, aesthetically, emotionally, tribally, that I also feel are really, really problematic morally. And I'm always, myself, feel kind of buffeted by those two things. And I guess um, that I just maybe kind of imagined, you know, younger American Jews being buffeted by them. But then I kind of imagined that, and I think this was, I think this has been borne out, that the average non-Orthodox American Jewish kid would, at the end of the day, would choose their universal moral values and um, uh, over the sense of um, kind of community bonds and obligations, maybe more than I would. I mean, I think when your piece came out, I remember thinking about it in terms of the Iraq war and taking it even sort of a step further and, and saying, gee, you know, here we are you know, many of us at that time, American Jews of, of really all generations, but for sure the younger ones, looking at the Iraq war and saying, gee, you know, uh, our government either lied to us or was terribly mistaken about the factual predicate for us, for, for the war. And here we are in, in this war, and we kind of don't trust what our government is saying about it. And we feel pretty comfortable about that. And here's uh, a, a Jewish establishment coming and saying you should trust this other government, the government of Israel, kind of without question. And even if for some reason that would have made sense before, at the point at which we don't trust the American government, it makes even less sense. And and I'm wondering now sort of what you're seeing in terms of it, it feels like living in the world of, of Trump may, is, is, you know, that times 10, because now we have a sense that, first of all, we have we live in our own country where we feel our government is terrible. And so we understand that we can hold at the same time the idea that we love America and we absolutely despise its leadership and and in, in sort of every way. And so how, why of course that could also be true of Israel. You know, and, and yet it and, right. and, and and it would be astonishing if it wasn't true. And yet there's this sort of there remains this idea that that somehow that it's wrong to think that way. And it just feels so uh, unreasonable to imagine that we would have that relationship towards a different country when we don't even have it towards our own country. That I, I wonder if, if you know, the situations become even more untenable. Yeah, I agree with you. It reminds me of a quote. Uh, there's a quote from Reinhold Niebuhr from the 1930s. I guess it was when he kind of broke with the Communist Party, and he said his his line was, "You know, I've never believed in my country right or wrong, especially when it's not even my country." And he was referring to the communists and the Soviet Union. So. Um, I, yeah, um, and I think one of the points you're getting at, which is important, is that I think that oftentimes American Jews see, to some degree, see Israel through the lens of our own politics. And so you've had these different eras. You know, you had this era in the 1990s, for instance, of the kind of Bill Clinton paired with Yitzhak Rabin and then with Ehud Barak, which was this kind of, you know, I'm old enough to remember that, which was a kind of a hopeful period where you could be a kind of a, you know, center left American Jew and feel reasonably good about your government or reasonably good about the Israeli government and believing they were trying to do the right thing. Um, and, and which I mean, the tension between Zionism and liberalism or Israeli government policy and liberalism was not as acute. 
But I do think that part of what's happened is that the, you know, my piece came out, I think, in 2010. It was, you know, after the, the kind of the, the Bush era and then, the emerge, and then Netanyahu's reemergence as prime minister as this person who I think a lot of American Jews and a lot of Americans saw as kind of like the American version of Dick Cheney and in opposition to Barack Obama. And I think that was part of what accelerated this process of alienation. And then I think you're right. It's now even more on steroids as you saw, you know, if you think about the kind of the American Jewish institutional world that Bush and Netanyahu, that Bush and Netanyahu represented in the constellation of ideas, you know, which were militaristic and I think and arrogant and hubristic, but not as. But then you think about that constellation of people and ideas that we associate with Netanyahu and Trump, you know, which which is much more just kind of blatantly racist, you know. I mean, I think Netanyahu has always, always actually been quite blatantly racist, but I think in a certain kind of way, if he, his association with Trump. And the people who one comes to the fore, I mean, for instance, like, let's say the emergence of the Zionist Organization for America as the Jewish organization in some ways maybe closest to Trump, right? Um, more than even APAC, you know, the, the most explicitly Islamophobia, you know, this kind of explicit Islamophobia. We're seeing this bifurcation, I think, which is not just kind of in which you have one wing of the American Jewish community, which is not just comfortable in the Republican Party. It was already comfortable in the Republican Party under Bush, but it's gravitated towards a deep, a thick sense of interlocking connections with those forces in the United States that really have a virtually kind of white Christian nationalist perspective on American life. And then in opposition to that, um, I think you have a group on the left, and again, I would think about kind of if not now as an example of that, which I think is is moving, you know, as the whole millennial left moves to a more radical, more oppositional policy on domestic stuff, is moving that way on on Israel too. So I think we have a kind of widening ca- moral and ideological chasm being fought, playing out in the American Jewish community, both vis-a-vis what's happening in the United States and what's happening in Israel. Yeah, I'm. I'm really glad you brought that up because I was. I was going to mention a a similar. A, I was going to mention something I've been thinking about, which is that your frame in 2010 of thinking about liberal values and and Zionism, Zionist values, nationalism. Um, it made perfect sense. And and what's funny is when I am in many millennial conversation contexts now, the word liberal actually has a very negative context in certain places because uh-huh, it's uh-huh. it's seen as the alternative not to conservative but as the alternative to radical um uh-huh, which what you uh-huh. and which which relates to what you just said about how the millennial generation by most polls etc cetera, etc cetera, we can look at bernie sanders and hillary clinton um is looking at politics from a vantage point that i think is it's definitely different from, but maybe a little bit more complicated than the liberal conservative duality that we've seen in the past. And I think that that's actually pulling on this conversation as well, because people are not only applying a liberal lens to the question of Israel and Palestine, but they're applying what we might term a radical lens also. And it's not that those are necessarily mutually exclusive in every case, but I think it's it's interesting to see how that plays out. And I guess on that front, I'm curious to hear from you Um, As someone who's watched sort of how this conversation goes down in a variety of liberal and radical and conservative and centrist contexts, like, 
there's a lot to say about the discourse of Israel-Palestine within Jewish within American Jewish communities and how various red lines are drawn and how whether it's radicals or non-Zionists or in some circles the opposite are made to feel that they're not really welcome in Jewish spaces. I know that you've written about this. Um, how does all of that relate to one another? For me, the liberalism that I identify and I think about is um, has always been subjected to a critique from the left. You know, it's, there are times in American history where the left is so weak that uh, like the 50s was a period like that. And I think the 80s and 90s were a period like that. That, that because the left was so weak, that the, the debate or the argument, the conflict between the left and liberals almost, almost disappeared from public view. But if you look at periods like the 30s or the 60s, um, you see how vibrant and, and actually often many of the most you look at the new, the new left was in many ways in the 60s much more hostile to liberals than it was to conservatives. Um, you know, George, you know, Malcolm X famously said, you know, I'd, I'd rather deal with George Wallace than, to, than with Bobby Kennedy because at least I, he's honest, you know. Um, and I think that we are, um, we probably, my guess would be, if millennials keep playing the way they out the way they are, we will have a return to more of that kind of debate and and. Um, between the left and, and liberals. And I think one of the debate ways in which it will play itself out is on the question of nationalism, um, which is to say that I think that liberals, I think there's a liber certain liberal tradition that I identify with to some degree that, that has some sympathy for nationalism, or putting another way, believes that nationalism is not something you could get, a, get away from or dispense with. Radicals would be more willing to try to want to push beyond that. And I think you see versions of that in in the emerging debates about how open one is, for instance, to the idea of a binational state. In terms of the way in which the, the community closes off conversations, it's probably a misnomer to talk about an American Jewish community in the sense that the, Amer there, the American Jewry has, there's so many American Jews that I don't think the term American Jewish community exists in the same way that you could talk about the Australian Jewish community, or for instance, the South African Jewish community, or even the British Jewish community. I mean, I, I just have enough experience, certainly with the South African Jewish community, to know that there's a different thing. That what that There is a way in a small and fairly traditional Jewish community, even Canada maybe, you can kind of be exiled a little bit, um, because there is kind of one center. So what you have is the kind of the creation of these different spaces. And I think you're right, what's striking is how radically different they are from one another to the extent that you can have, um, you know, you can go to certain Jewish environments where it's kind of anathema to be, anathema to be a Democrat and many others where it's anathema to be a Republican. To, you can go to many where the price of entry is to oppose BDS and to be a Zionist, whatever, however that's defined, it's usually not, and maybe even not to publicly criticize Israeli policy. And you're right, but we're also seeing the emergence of small, but I think they will grow Jewish spaces where some of the assumptions might be the, might be the reverse, and I think that regardless of what you think you want, you know, we should be doing vis vis Israel. I do think one of the challenges is how to how to have those different space people in the different spaces talk to one another, um, and what could be a common basis for them to have any any form of interaction and discourse at all. What was originally in my thought was that, you know, one of the failures of the Jewish establishment uh, has been this this basic framing of 
the approach toward Israel saying, look, to, to young Jews, right? Look, you're either you're with us or you're against us, right? Meaning like you got to you got to do it the way that we do it or you're basically an enemy or an idiot. And I think that, you know, most people, especially if they're relatively uh, not so plugged into this from before in their lives, you know, they'll, they'll look at this and say, I mean, if you're saying that I'm with you or against you, I mean, I know that I'm not with you. So I, I guess I must be against <laughs> you. But what's interesting is that there's a the potential way that that that's also done in, in reverse, right? I mean, I, I think there is a, a framing uh, from from radicals in general and often, right? That sort of says like the, this is the this is the absolutely the right way it has to be. And you know, you're either with us or against us. You know, it's like the '60s, right? I mean, you're either with us or you're the man. Um, and you know, they'd say, well, I mean, I, I'm not with you, so I guess I'm the man. You know, and and. Um, and I guess I'm wondering, you know, if we're talking about the discourse here, it's kind of like, are we looking at a at an inevitable schism here, or or is there some way, you know, where where either the Jewish establishment or perhaps some other entity in the Jewish world could or is stepping up and saying we can we can put out here a different framework for discussion that that actually might work to to try to stitch this together in some worthwhile way. What, do you have a sort of a policy recommendation or do you see any of that happening successfully? The divide that we're seeing over Israel, which is a divide that I think is, is widening. It, 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 it's moving from a divide between um, liberal critics, you know, liberal Zionists on the one hand versus kind of hawkish Zionists on the other to a divide between uh, non or anti-Zionist on the one hand and explicitly civil, you know, clash of civilizations Zionist on the other. And I think that is a much wider gap. And if you look back, like, for instance, at the, at the fights inside the American Jewish community over the Lebanon war in the early eighties or the first intifada, you look at a figure like say Arthur Hertzberg, you know, what, what's striking to me when I, as I, you know, when I look back on those, when I read about research for my book is that the debates were very bitter. Um, about Israeli policy, but they were, but they were also within a, but they were, but they were within a Zionist framework. Um, and I think what's what's shifting, it's, and it's partly because I think Palestinians are gaining more of a voice in the United States, is that it's not just that the fights will be bitter, but that there won't be that the perspective, the, the gap between the two perspectives will be wider and more fundamental. You know, I would love to see ways of in which people from these different worlds could come together and study. Um, and study Jewish, study Jewish texts, study Jewish, you know, study aspects of Jewish tradition, moments in Jewish history, kind of probably putting aside Israel because it would be too toxic. Um, but it, even that is difficult because, as you know, one of the challenges is that one wing comes into that conversation with very, very little background. So they, and I think this is part of the problem you see at Hillel, you know, which is that like the kids who don't have a Jewish background feel intimidated to begin with there, let alone the fact that they may be out of play, out of source on Israel. And so I would, I would love to see a conversation in which people from different ideological and political and religious places came and looked at Jewish texts and tried to find those, find their discussions as about around those as a place of, you know, of respectful conversation. But I actually think the pro I think there are barriers to that. And part of it is that so many Jews in the United States, especially on the left, are so distant from and even intimidated by our, our tradition's own literature. 
I wanted to hone in on something that you alluded to very briefly, but that I think could have many, many Talmud pages, which was you mentioned that in many spaces it is expected for people to be a Zionist, but that's not defined. Um, and and one one I forget if I heard you say this or if I read it in something you wrote, but at one point you said something that deeply affected my outlook on Judaism. And and it was a historical look. And so I think for our listeners, it'd be great to sort of do some historical digging and background. But what you were talking about is that if we were to rewind uh, uh, to, to the conversations about Zionism at the Zionist Congress or 100 years ago, I mean, before Israel existed, the idea that Zionism meant specifically a Theodore Herzl kind of Zionism in the sense of a political state would not have been an obvious. And you were, and you, 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 I think you said something to the effect of like, whose Zionism are we talking about? Achad Ha'ams, Theodore Herzl's, Jabotinsky's, et cetera, et cetera. And that was, that opened up my mind a great deal because it, it said to me that a word I had taken for granted as meaning a very particular set of things and believing in a very particular kind of Jewish state was actually far broader. And then I think you've also spoken about how in the pre-state era and certainly in American Judaism, the idea that Zionism was a consensus was not at all true. So in a certain sense, what we're seeing now and what you're describing and how there are more and more folks questioning Zionism and how that wouldn't have been the case in the 80s, say, um, I, I think it's actually hearkening back to a time when, say, the reform movement was actively not Zionist and et cetera, et cetera. So I guess I'd love to hear from you. What What is some of the historical, what are some of the historical differences among Zionisms that we might have sort of painted over over the past decades as Israel has become sort of concrete in our minds and also how could how should we or could we think about what it means to not be a zionist as we look back at our american jewish history that's actually a you know i, I consider myself much more a, a student of that question than a than any kind of expert at all um i you know i've learned from other people um you know I, but i do think that there were different people who articulated different rationales for why there should be a Jewish presence in the land of Israel. Um, so, you know, when you're talking about, uh, so, so there was an argument, obviously, which was about Jewish safety and Jewish self-protection, um, um, which I think is, I would associate more with kind of political Zionism of Herzl. There were arguments about, um, about the importance of Jewish self-expression, about, about Jewish culture, uh, that I would associate more with the kind of cultural Zionism of Khadfa'am. And then there were also different other visions about what, you know, what the Jewish presence there could accomplish, you know, kind of labor, the socialist Zionism, which believed that, that you know, in some ways, Jews needed, may have needed their own state for protection, but part of what they were going to do was basically create this great socialist. They were going to show the Europeans by being the world's best socialist and basically embody certain socialist ideals, you know, and then there were, then they came along religious Zionists who believed that you know, overcame the the, the the traditional religious hostility to Zionism by saying that the creation of the state could be uh, part of a messianic process. And um, a lot of these really interesting ideological and theological debates in the United States, basically, you know, where there were also there were a lot of strong anti-Zionist traditions, right? The reform movement said, we're a faith, we're not a people, right? They said, America is our Zion, right? Um, the Orthodox movement was most Orthodox Jews would have taken the view that 
um, uh, or most ra- Orthodox rabbis would have taken the traditional religious view that Jews can't re- rebuild the temple, the Beit HaMikdash, and recreate Jewish sovereignty until Messianic times. I do think that what kind of ended that debate to a significant degree in the United States was the Holocaust. And so, you know, it, it kind of in some ways made all of these things seem like a luxury that Jews didn't have, that Jews couldn't afford to engage in, that whatever ideological or theological issues you might have with Jewish statehood, the Jewish population would be exterminated and the rest of the world was closing its doors. And, that, and you know, even for myself, you know, I mean, growing up in the 80s and seeing Soviet Jews and Ethiopian Jews going to Israel, it was a pretty powerful testament to the idea that um, you want a Jewish state around to to look out for Jews who are in peril. What I would like to see is that instead of the American Jewish organizational establishment drawing a red line around Zionism and saying, you're either in if you're a Zionist or out if you're not a Zionist, without actually really debating what Zionism is and the multiplicity of Zionism, in, instead for them to actually create an open conversation about what forms of Zionism people feel they, they believe are, are rec- reconcilable with liberal democracy and what forms are not. By one point of example, cultural Zionism, the tradition of a Ha'an that you can trace through like Brit, the Brit Shalom group, for instance, in the mid 20th century, people like Hannah Arendt, you might have said, yes, we are Zionists in the sense that we really believe it's important to have a Jewish presence in the land of Israel. It makes certain things possible. The recreation of Hebrew as a living language would be one obvious example. But we are, don't necessarily believe that you need a Jewish state, that you might be able to have a Jewish presence that could exist within other state forms. It could have been the Ottoman Empire. It could be a binational state. Now, there are obviously critiques of that. You could say, no, you need the hard shell of the Jewish state to protect the Jewish presence. But, you know, if I were saying, you know, I, but I think just the recognition that there is a cultural Zionist tradition, which does not necessarily need to take state form, I think itself just shows how impoverished a lot of the language uh, of this is. And if I were advising a group like If Not Now, for instance, can't, which, which can't embrace political Zionism in a Jewish state because it's divided on that subject, what I would say is, okay, but think about yourself at least as cultural Zionists. Some of you may be political Zionists too, but if you really do believe in the Jewish presence of the land of Israel, if you think that's important, then understand what the cultural Zionist tradition is and talk about that and maybe even claim to some degree, the idea that you are Zionist of a certain kind. And, and I, I think there's a, there's a value in that. I'm thinking about a, another question, which is the renewed kind of Sturm und Drang about religious pluralism in Israel that sort of come about because of the uh, Western Wall situation where there's been uh, resistance from the ultra-Orthodox parties in Israel to a compromise solution of uh, putting an egalitarian prayer section of the Western Wall But one of the things more important than that particular issue, I think, as I think about it, is that it's sort of a demonstration of the degree to which the uh, various religious entities, and and by this we mean Orthodox entities or ultra-Orthodox entities in Israel, have tremendous sway over the uh, decisions of the Israeli government. And and the reason why I think that's important is because it's clear that the uh, Israel's position vis-a-vis the, the occupied territories, the West Bank in particular, uh, 
has a security dimension, a claim security dimension, which may or may not be valid. We could all argue about that. Um, but it also contains a serious religious dimension. And a lot of the American Jewish um, reluctance to sort of um, get involved with that and, and put pressure on the Israeli government about the occupation of the West Bank has been because of a, a sort of a claim, which again, we could agree with or disagree with, that says that, you know, we don't live there and we shouldn't get involved with, with security uh, questions. But if it turns out that that the reality is, and, and I think this is the case, that if there had not been a religious yearning for the, uh, Israel to to uh, possess the West Bank that had nothing to do with security, if that wasn't a thing, there would not be a majority in the Israeli electorate to hold on to it for security reasons. So in a sort of uh, legalistic, you know, but for type, of, you know, I'm a lawyer, you know, it's like, a, it's like, the, uh -huh. the, I would argue that the, that the religious uh, dimension of the, the West Bank is a, a but for cause of the continuing occupation and perhaps the permanent occupation as it, as it appears. And, you know, I, I just sort of wonder if that sort of exacerbates the situation even more and, and makes, makes people start to question even more the American Jewish establishment sort of reasons for not being willing to sort of uh, represent the true position of a majority of American Jews vis-a-vis -vis some of these issues uh, uh, relating to Israel. And as a result, the, the silent majority, let's say, of the American Jewish community just drifts further and further away. There's a lot there. I mean, you're, you're but one, one interesting kind of way of thinking about that, but for example, about how important religion has been in the settlement enterprises compared to the West Bank to Gaza, which has much less religious significance. And I do think that's part of the reason that Israel was able to withdraw its settlers from Gaza. Um, although I, I think Israel does, still does control Gaza in a different form. Um, it frustrates me sometimes that American Jewish organizations are m willing to criticize Israel for the way it treats non-Orthodox Jews uh, and not for the way it treats Palestinians. Um, but I also think that the wall, the Western Wall, is in, in, so, in some ways is just the tip of the iceberg that I think a lot of American Jews haven't really, that I think people haven't thought that much about or grappled with. And so, for instance, I bet if you, I wonder, I bet if you, if you polled American Jews and you said, should there be separation of church and state in Israel? My hunch would be that they would say yes, um, because they have an instinctive affinity with the idea of separation of church and state. Um, and yet I don't think that they would be aware of the fact that in so saying that, they would actually be challenging Jewish statehood in some pretty profound ways. Israel, I don't think that Jews in the United States, by and large, you know, realize things like the fact that Israel has no civil marriage, for instance. And, and that, that if they started to think about it more, more than just kind of like the problem of women not being able to read Torah at the, at the, the Western Wall at the Kotel, even though that's important, I think they might actually find that they have bigger problems with the idea of Jewish statehood than they have necessarily allowed them, that they have, than they've quite realized. It's the beginning of a, in some ways, of a larger conversation, where I think will come, for better or for worse, which to some degree may involve a certain kind of peeling away of the onion and of Jews in the United States trying to actually figure out what it is about the idea of Jewish nation that they really actually want to defend. And I think that the Jewish organization establishment is, is not just kind of which Israeli policies they want to defend vis-a-vis the West Bank, but, but what about this state's very existence? they feel like is central and what they actually feel like they actually um, they may have a problem with.
We're nearing our close, and one piece that I'm noticing as this conversation has gone by and as I've read some of your other work is that I feel as if I'm in, when I'm in conversation with you, there's there's the voice of your family and your parents and your grandparents and you and you referenced South Africa. And there's also the voice of millennials. And we're already now. I mean, we haven't talked about Gen Z yet, but already at this point, millennials are almost like passe. Um, but I mean, so we're going to have to have a whole new layer about the next generational differences. But um, but an ongoing theme of of Judaism Unbound that we look at a lot is that which is generational. So that which genuinely does different it does manifest differently in the Jewish world for my grandparents for my parents for me for eventually my children um but we also we also try and identify things that we might think are are generational you know oh millennials want social justice millennial like millennials are dissatisfied with institutions in x y or z way and we often sort of amplify voices of people from older generations that are also dissatisfied for those same reasons. And so I guess this is a long way of asking, like, when when you think about your parents and your generation and your children um, and how they are relating with Israel, what really actually feels similar? What What, what aspects of their aspirations and desires for the world feel similar and aligned in a way that we might forget when we're only focused in on that which distinguishes us from our parents and our children. Right, right. No, I think it's important that you make that point. And again, I think also because although I, I you know, I, I do believe that there's a really important generational story here, difference, it's, it's always really important to remember that the Orthodox community is going to be a larger is a, is a larger percentage of younger American Jews than it is older. It's going to play a larger and larger role, probably, if trends continue, in American Jewish life. And there you see that, that, that this trend is not playing out in the same way. I mean, I was recently in a really interesting conversation where I heard someone who's a kind of Jewish millennial kind of youth activist talk about the way she felt and her experiences um, and of her alienation from Israeli policies. And she was speaking to a room of uh, Orthodox women and a couple of them said to her, you know, with all due respect, I'm the same age as you, and I don't feel that way at all. And it was just a reminder that we make certain assumptions when we talk about young American Jews. And Ben Shapiro is a pretty young guy. I'm not a fan of his views, but he has a constituency. He comes from a place, and it's not insignificant at all. You know, when I think about my own family, my, you know, uh, to me, the, the story, the continuity that I see when I think about my parents in South Africa, and now when I look at my kids going to, you know, Jewish day school is that I feel like there's a tradition, I guess, of wrestling with the uh, universalism versus particularism and trying to find that sweet spot, that, that space where you feel it's both kind of richly Jewish and deeply Jewish, and yet also humane, you know, and decent and open to the world, you know, and, um, I, to me, I guess, like when I find those little spaces like that, I feel very, very happy. I always find like myself really found really compelling when people can find different kinds of formulations that put together the universal and the particular in ways that kind of honors them both. I try to do that in my life, sometimes successfully, not always successfully. And I kind of, uh, I know, saw my parents doing that and I hope my kids will find their own way of doing that. Well, thank you so much, Peter Beiner, for joining us for this conversation. It's been a great one. Thanks for having me.
And as we close this episode featuring Peter Beiner, we wanted to let you know a couple other places that you can hear from him, learn from him, etc. And one of those is his book, The Crisis of Zionism, that we mentioned earlier on in this episode. And second, you can actually listen to his podcast, Fault Lines, which was released last year and is still available on iTunes or other places where podcasts are found, in which he and Danny Gordis of Shalem College discuss and debate a variety of issues across the right-left divide. In addition to that, we of course want to close out this episode as we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us, and there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can hit us up on Twitter at at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can hit us up via email at dan at JudaismUnbound.com or lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us with a financial donation, either on a one-time basis or a monthly recurring basis. And you can do either of those at judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.